Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Dig Insights. Using decision science, Dig Insights helps researchers at the world's most well-loved brands drive growth in crowded categories. Their work is supported by proprietary technology, including Upside, the only ResTech platform exclusively built to test and optimize innovation. Learn more at diginsights.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Green Book Podcast. I'm Karen Lynch, happy to be hosting today and happy that you are all choosing to spend some time with us. Thank you for that. It's a pleasure to know that our listeners are listening and taking in the stories that we're sharing with them. And and today we do have a spoiler alert. We do have a story to share. I'm really excited about this episode, actually, for some personal reasons, which I'll talk about momentarily with our guest. But First, let me just tell you who who we're talking to today. Today, we're talking to Miranda Mapleton. If you don't know Miranda, she's the chief executive officer of White Swan, and we'll get into a bit about what White Swan is all about. But just know that she joins us currently as you know a founder of a charity organization, but also with a vast background in marketing positions at at large companies like PepsiCo and Mars, and kind of growing her data skills in those places and her marketing skills. And, and now she's applying that expertise, the you know decades worth of expertise into a nonprofit that is benefiting society through data, which is really very exciting. So I'm going to let her fully introduce herself. But first, I just want to say, Miranda, welcome to the Green Book Podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. And, and why don't I turn the mic over to you and let you share a little bit more about yourself with our audience so they can understand kind of who you are before we start talking about White Swan and the great work you're doing. Sure. Thank you. So I started my career in FMCG marketing, as you mentioned. So I I still have a love of marketing. I started as a graduate uh, in a biscuit company over here in the UK. And then I grew up through the ranks in marketing and became a director with PepsiCo, running a big £1 billion brand, which was fun. Then I moved on to Mars into pet care, so I changed categories. I have a love of animals, so I have a, a Labrador and um, always have loved uh, animals. And then from there, moved into e-com, and that's really where I got more into the data world, to be honest, because I was working for a big business in the UK which was FTSE listed, and I was running all of their marketing. And that led me to understand more about how data can be used for good decision making. But what I found after some time in that business is that I felt I wanted to do more good in the world. And I had always always had a healthy interest in health and wellness. A very good friend of mine, Steve King, had been founding a business called Black Swan Data and had used his technology to diagnose his sister with a rare form of Parkinson's. And he wanted someone to use the technology of Black Swan for good. And that's and he asked me if I'd found a charity. And that's my path to, to leading White Swan. And I've now had seven years since founding this, running the organization. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. 
you know, there's so many personal connections I'm making already. And I imagine if I'm having those personal connections, our audience is too. First of all, we share a love of animals. Mm-hmm. My my golden retriever just had to leave the room because she gets all up in my business. <laughs> and um, so, so yeah, so we share that affinity. I have also been quite interested in health and wellness. I'm, I'm pretty open about the fact that I'm a two-time cancer survivor myself. But one of the reasons why I'm anxious for you to share the story of Julie King with our audience and how White Swan came to be is because, you know, like many of us, we have people in our worlds that are dealing with illnesses and some of them are hard to diagnose and hard to detect and certainly hard to treat. And it becomes a complicated puzzle. So I applaud the efforts that you and and certainly and Steve and then White Swan continues doing to help people through data. So why don't we take that step back and tell us a little more about about the start? So so Julie um, is a wonderful lady. Uh, she was the sister to Steve King. So Steve is the CEO and founder of a company called Backswan Data. Now Steve is her big brother. And Julie had unfortunately been suffering for about eight years undiagnosed. She was a very, very poorly. She had two children herself and she had become uh, wheelchair bound. And over that time, just got worse and worse. The doctors said to Steve, you know, you have to accept you're probably going to lose your sister. He couldn't accept that prognosis. And so he used Black Swan's technology to try and find out what was wrong with her. And what that involved was searching millions of social conversations in public forums, but capturing that data and using NLP techniques to understand the common themes and the sorts of conditions that were being raised disproportionately to the rarity of that disease. So it might be super rare, but being coming up several times. In conjunction with that, this process took a year or so, um, she kept a diary of everything she did and how she felt. So they were looking for patterns. It was all about pattern recognition and what made her feel better and worse. And Steve posted a video of what Julie was like through the day and asked lots of forums what they thought and had thousands of responses. So then use the same NLP techniques of Black Swan to see what was coming up within those responses that they hadn't considered before. There were two conditions that came up through that which hadn't been, she'd not been tested for. One of them was Parkinson's dystonia, which is what she's got. And they took those results uh, to her consultant and he agreed to check her for them. She was diagnosed very quickly then on the right medication and her life was transformed. I mean, this was a very, very sick girl. And now she is competing triathlons. She's actually started taking part in CrossFit European Championships now. and She's amazing. And it's also enabled her to be a brilliant mum to her children. And as a mum myself, I can only imagine what it would feel like to not be able to be part of your children's lives in the way she wanted to be. So. That story inspired the people of Black Swan, who worked for Steve at the time, to want to found a charity. But like everything, it's really hard to do these things alongside your day job. So he asked me if I would found an organisation for him, initially with just volunteers. So I had volunteers joining me. And over time, from me and 20 volunteers, we've grown into an organisation with five staff, three trustees, clinical advisory board and 130 volunteers across the world. And that's happened over the last seven years. We're registered as an independent charity and we're all about using technology and data for good. So it's we've seen data has the power to save lives and transform lives in Julie's case. And as you mentioned, unfortunately, Julie's not alone. There's 500 million people across the world 
suffering long-term undiagnosed like she is. So we're trying to help those people using our, our technology and analytics. I love that story so very much. And there's so many directions we can go in with this conversation. We can certainly talk to you about how to manage the growth of a nonprofit, how to, how to manage a nonprofit, let alone how to manage the growth of a nonprofit. But we're also interested in the data angle here. And I think that one of the, one of the aspects of this story that I found really interesting, and, and I don't think it's in what you just shared, it's in what I when I went onto your White Swan website and I went to the nav bar where it said our story, there was this great, really well done, by the way, for our audience, go check it out, you know, kind of graphic facilitation video explaining the story as well. And the aspect of it, again, let me come back to the, the question at hand is how was the information that was gleaned then shared with medical professionals who made their decision. Because I imagine many medical professionals could be cynical. They could be skeptical of, wait, what's this work coming out of the insights industry? That's like, tell me a little bit about that process and how did you convict people or how did Steve and Julie convict people that this data was actually going to inform their decision-making? It's a good point. And I think we should never underestimate the power of our medical colleagues and their, you know, all of their training and expertise too. We very much look to work alongside clinicians and always do in our work. So we don't do anything in isolation with clinicians. In Julie's case, I think what Steve found is that they'd hit a brick wall with solutions as a clinical team. And what by showing them the depth of conversations that they looked at, I and mean, we're talking about millions of conversations here and very sophisticated NLP techniques. And to keep coming back to these two conditions that kept coming up with the description of her symptoms, which were quite complex because Julie would get worse through the day. So she'd start off in the morning being able to do most activities. By lunchtime, would be in a wheelchair, and by the evening, couldn't even lift a knife and fork. So that, that progression every single day was quite outstanding, really, in terms of, in, in, in an awful way, how it would change. So... The clinicians themselves, I think, felt that both there was a lot of robust analysis that had gone into this, and you couldn't deny these two that came up. And once you said it, and they said, "Well, actually, that's a good point. Maybe it could be that," and hence looked into it. And a lot of doctors, the, the challenges to them is that there's so many rare conditions out there. I mean, there's thousands of rare conditions. It's very hard for them to always be able to correctly identify which one it might be immediately. So I think they they understood. It was coming from a very good place. It had robust analysis behind it and could see that it was a credible diagnosis. And we've been testing our techniques to look at other people's. We get approached by people who are looking to get themselves self-diagnosed. We, we no longer take on individual cases because there's too many of them. We're, we're building our technology to help people like Julie and we can help them at scale. But when you talk to those people, they have the same experience of going through a diagnosis process, lots of they go down lots of paths, they get to lots of dead ends, uh, and it can be very hard to express to a doctor all the things you've been facing over time because you don't necessarily know what is and isn't relevant to them. And one of the things that was important within Julie's diagnosis ultimately was that she started the process with toe curling. But at the time, she had no idea that that was actually relevant until she got her final diagnosis. And they said, did you ever experience toe curling? And she said, well, I did. Did you tell your doctor? No, I didn't. Why? Because I didn't even realise it was a symptom at the time. I thought I had cramp. So I think, you know, what it allows us to do is look for all the different signals, I guess, within that great big noise of data. Yeah. 
I, again, I, this, I love this so much. I'm another sort of story I'll share personally is that my father has Parkinson's, the more traditional form of Parkinson's. And he's also had a pacemaker at it. He's in his eighties and has had seen his share of, of, of doctors. And, and recently, very recently, he had a situation where he would sort of become non-responsive and the medical professionals at the emergency room and all that kept thinking he was having these mini strokes called, um, TIAs, I think, transient something attacks. I'm not a medical professional. Anyway, my family, we kept calling them episodes because afterwards there was never any sign that he had had a stroke, but we kept calling them episodes. And somewhere my father found in the last few weeks a an article that he had clipped out, so like a paper article that talked about something called syncope, which is like fainting spells. And then, you know, they they call the re- their researcher daughter and they say, what can you find out kind of thing. So I start doing some research and syncope is actually a side effect of many Parkinson's patients. And it is exactly what has he has been experiencing because it's also linked to low blood pressure or drops in blood pressure. And I'm like, why am I the one and why is my family, why are we the ones trying to connect dots? Because no medical professionals have been telling us that. He's been dealing with this for well over a year. But we have to be advocates for ourselves. And when I heard the story of Wad Swan, I was thinking how wonderful that there is an organization because once I started doing the research, more and more results were coming into me. And as you're talking just now, I'm thinking it would be amazing if I could mine the internet for stories of other Parkinson's patients who were having these fainting spells tied to their blood pressure, which drops because of their medication And wouldn't that help his neurologist prescribe the right medication? So anyway, I share that because I think it's genius, and I'm really excited that you're doing this work. And to your point of not really working with individuals, who are you working with then? Like, who is the beneficiary of some of this data work that you are doing right now? So we know that social data is hugely underutilized currently within the health and wellness area, and that's what we're trying to work on now. So how do you use these giant data sets and they are huge you know billions and billions of social conversations around health every year and it's global so it's multi-language and that's what we're trying to utilize we work currently with a broad variety of organizations in public sector and private sector and charitable sector so essentially the likes of British Heart Foundation, Great Ormond Street Hospital, Royal Marsden Hospital all in the UK we've worked with some um, American organizations as well Um, global farmers like Bayer as an example and we work with and a lot of NHS trusts as well we work with those organizations because they all want to utilize this data but don't know how or don't have the capabilities technologies NAFP techniques to make sense of data like that at scale it's unstructured it's messy it's not you know noisy you've got to be able to structure it and cleanse it and make sure you've got the right breadth of data set in the first place so you don't miss things because often you're looking for things that you don't always know what you're looking for until you find it. So questions can change over time. And unlike traditional research techniques, it's unbiased by design because instead of asking set questions, you're going out and seeing what the conversation is around these broad areas and then narrowing it down. And We've built over the last five years a technology platform called Million Minds, and that allows us to structure this data and interrogate the data on any topic in the health area. And it's category agnostic. So we can look at symptoms or lifestyle factors or treatments, for example, 
all the different uh, ways we can look at it. And for those types of organisations, it therefore answers a very broad range of questions. Some of those organisations are looking at how to improve patient experiences and patient care. Some of those organisations want to accelerate diagnosis, for example. So how do we get patients faster from initial symptom to an accurate diagnosis? So we help in that area. We also help improve things like clinical trial design. So how does the voice of the patient represent is represented in that trial design to make sure the most important symptoms and lifestyle impacts of a condition are taken into account in, in, in drug development? And we also help to prioritise research areas for organisations when they've got lots of different things they could look into. Or in for other charities like Alzheimer's, we might help to inform where they put their resources for helping dementia patients and their families. So we can look at it in a, a huge variety of ways. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, again, it's it's no doubt this is um, just great work that you're doing. And when I think about the types of organizations you're working with, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of foundations and trusts and um, societies and things of that nature. And what strikes me is that the work that you're doing is very much like a research provider who was a specialist in this field, right? That's how you sound. You sound like you are a research specialist catering to this field, yet there's this charity aspect. So tell me more about the charity aspect and how this works. If one of these associations who uh, sometimes they have money in their budget for research. So, so how does it work? What are you actually doing for them that would be different from a full service supplier? So I guess everything we do as a charity has to be in line with our charitable mission. And for that, that's a, that is about the improvement of health using data and, and, and analytics to accelerate diagnosis, improve the effectiveness of treatment or prevent illness. So we will only do work if it does that, because we're guided by our charitable objects. When we work with those organisations, we do it two ways. We either work in a paid capacity, so we still do that for far reduced funds than it would be a traditional commercial organisation, but they pay for that piece of work, and it is a research uh, project. But we can do that um, to answer key questions. We help uh, those organisations form those questions. And we can be very agile in approach because we often find that people start, we start to discover things and then we pivot as we go through a project. Or we do pro bono work. So for other organisations, we use our volunteer set to do completely free of charge pro bono projects. We typically do that just for the charitable sector. We sometimes do it in academia as well. Uh, and those projects come sometimes from passions of volunteers. So, for example, we did one in cardio in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for someone who lost a relative in that area. And so we did a big project uh, voluntarily in that area on, to accelerate diagnosis of that condition. Other projects come to us because they are they hear about what we can do. We haven't yet found any organisation globally that does what we do and certainly none that do it in a charitable capacity. And if we make any surplus funds, those all go into helping other patients, because what we're ultimately doing as we build our data sets and our, you know, our, our Million Minds platform is we want that to be patient facing ultimately. And what that will mean is other people like Julie can access our data set and our capabilities, but do it in a way of helping themselves and their, and their clinicians to get them to an answer. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Dig Insights. Have you listened to Dig In? It's the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights, designed for brand professionals that crave innovation inspiration. Each week, Dig invites a business leader onto the podcast to spill the beans on the story behind some of the coolest innovations on the market. Search Dig In wherever you get your podcasts. 
Yeah, I love I love your work. And I think that there's something very powerful about a strong mission that guides an organization, whether that is in the nonprofit sector or whether that is in the, you know, for-profit sector. I think when you're guided by a vision, that just makes everything a little bit clearer. The next question I have, which is sort of related to that, is actually about your volunteers then. You mentioned, I think you have over 130 volunteers across the globe. And I'm I'm curious, okay, tell me about those volunteers. And I know that, again, back to your website, which I've spent some time on, there's an area that says you can you can be, be involved, you can be a part in an organization, you can, you know, obviously there's some funds that you can collect, but tell me about the volunteering. I find that interesting. That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And actually, to begin with, as I said, it was just me and all the volunteers. So I got very good at, at volunteer management, which was a new skill for me because I'd come from a business world. And one of the things I recognized early in my leadership was the how to inspire other people to work with me and follow my vision without getting paid for it. And what that was about is then buying into a mission and feeling the same way about helping these people who are living long time and diagnosed to find an answer. Because if it's awful, if you don't know what's wrong with you and you don't know what to do about it or how to prevent it, you really feel in a terrible place. And so everybody that's joined us as a volunteer has bought into that mission of helping those people. And the other thing I learned within this is that they need to feel hugely valued in what they did. Anything they did with us, we were very grateful for and their skills were valued. And what we found over the course of that is that the skills that first came to us were very much data science and technology led. And then over time, we attracted volunteers who brought very different skills. So we've got doctors and medics who volunteer for us and will help with the data construction sometimes because every time we create a new taxonomy, um, a part of our taxonomy for a new disease type, we clinically check that. So we're we're very close to how to use combination of um, patient data and you know, clinical expertise. We also found that we brought in creative people. So we've had volunteers doing our website for us, for example, or others that might help with finding new new prospects for us to do work with, because also we need to raise funds to keep the charity going. So all of the volunteers bring different skill sets and all of them are hugely valued. And we also recognise that people can give up different amounts of time at different times in their life and it ebbs and flows. So recognising that and being flexible to that. The only thing I ask of people is if you commit to do something, please do it because we're a very professional organisation and when we commit to things, we always deliver them. So they seem to have very good. We've had some of our volunteers with us since the very start, so seven years, and others of them obviously joined us on that journey. Yeah, it's it's just great. And and again, like there's another area that we could talk about for a really long time, probably, which is, you know, volunteer ma- management. And I know that there's a lot of associations in, in the research industry that are volunteer driven and volunteer led. And it's always on people's minds how to keep a volunteer motivated. So if you had a very short statement, you know, yes, appreciation, because I think a lot of a lot of people intuit that you have to appreciate your volunteers and what they're giving. But is there any other way that you help them? help them to help you? I think clarity of requirements and what you need from them is very important so that they can decide if they commit to it or not and they don't feel their time is wasted. So no one wants their time wasted. Yeah, feeling values, as I mentioned, and then buying into our mission and seeing us delivering against it. They feel their work is purposeful. They see the delivery of it. They understand what it's being used for. It's very visible. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I think that it... It is human nature to hit a certain point in your life if you weren't necessarily raised that way or if you didn't start at a young age doing that. You certainly hit a point where you want you want your work to have meaning. 
And I can just imagine that this is a great solution for people who are in either, you know, the insights, data science space, medical space. Like it just seems to be lots of people can buy into the mission of let's impact people and really change lives for the better. So really kudos to you on everything that you're doing. Let, let's talk about, you know, further out. So, so you have seven years behind your belt and as the, you know, the kind of guiding, guiding light for the organization, I'm sure you have a vision for the future. So how are you going to kind of keep on keeping on? Do you have a, like a, a five-year plan from this point forward? Are you still in the, the works there to create one? What's, what's your vision looking forward? So our, we continue to be guided by this desire to, we believe no one should suffer unnecessarily, not knowing what's wrong with them, what to do about it, how to prevent it. So that's guiding us all the way through. We know to ultimately deliver against that million minds needs to be patient-facing and needs to be something that's available worldwide for everyone to use in a self-serve way so that they can take that information to their clinician like Julie did, but an automated version of what Julie did to help them on that journey. That's some way off yet <laughs> because it's we've got a fantastic platform that we're developing that we're using every day for all of our other work. But to be patient-facing, we need to have uh, develop more data sets against it. So we keep adding disease ontologies you know, to, or, to it. We need to make sure that we've got the right um, funding to allow for that long-term plan. And we need to work out over the course of that how that fits with other things they're using in their daily life. Because obviously throughout all of this journey, technology is changing in the healthcare space and people trying to offer different solutions. And LLMs is just another example of that. So I'd say we're, we're always on a journey towards that ultimate goal. We have had some incredibly encouraging early signs as to how good we are at trying to you know, map these mass data sets and come up with a credible list of things that could be wrong. But we don't want to be used in isolation. So part of that journey involves in involving clinicians in, in that journey so they feel that it's a credible solution. We did win a place a few years ago on a digital accelerator in, with the NHS in, in London. And that helped us to understand more of those challenges ahead and what things we need to do to make that a reality. And we also find as we go on this journey, there are other opportunities to help big communities that make a difference in the space. So, for example, we know that academics struggle to manage this data and access this data. And yet there are millions of academics across the world spending a huge amount of research funds and aren't using social data as well as they could because they just don't they don't know how to manage it without the technology to manage it. So right now, for example, one of the interim steps towards that ultimate vision we're looking at is could we build a platform for academics to use to access our data set and in doing so hugely improve the efficiency of their works, um, make it much more equitable, so equitable access. A data set which could be robustly looked at time and again if they you know, have a research topic and they want to go back two years later and see if they get the same results from socials. So, because socials are a great predictor of trends as well, you know, what's going to be the next thing that we need to consider. So, we are seeing some of those steps along the way as we identify opportunities to utilize our skills for good. Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things that comes along with, with the work that you're doing are some of these issues, you know, you, you talk about data and you can't help but go into sort of data quality, right? And and we know that there must be information out there that is misinformation. So how are you, this is a series of questions that I'd love for you to expand upon. How are you dealing with the fact that you don't want 
poor data or bad data or inaccurate data to factor in. That's one one bucket, right? The data quality issue. But then there's also the privacy issues, especially when you come to healthcare. And you know, you mentioned how people are kind of tracking their own health data. And in my mind, I know, you know, wearables are a thing and apps for tracking health, like individual data, there's privacy concerns. So how are you venturing into those two big buckets of data quality and data privacy and facing those challenges that the insights industry faces, but is tightened or heightened in the healthcare sector? Sure. So maybe I'll take privacy first, and we'll talk about quality second, because they're kind of interlinked. From a privacy perspective, all of the data we deal with is being shared already in a public forum. So this is publicly shared data because it's social data, it's data from blogs, forums, Twitter, etc. So it is very different than the type of data like a medical record, which is shared in a private context with your you know, consultant. So that's one thing I've made. So it's first of all, it's being publicly shared. Obviously, you've given permission within your T's and C's to, to share to, for that to be shared. Also, everything we work with is anonymized. So we don't work with any PPI data. We only work with anonymized data because actually for us, the benefit is in scale and volume, not in looking at individual bits of information. And that really comes back to the data quality piece, which is we deal with big volumes. And within that, it helps us to strip out you know, trends and, and uh, look for anomalies in that. So you have less things that will take you off to the, a different space. We'll also look at, for example, whether there's spikes and what's led to that spike in conversation types. So is it all coming from one source? Is it all coming from one handle, for example, that's on Twitter? So you can take out some of those anomalies in the data. We do a lot with um, cleansing and looking at relevancy using our our data modeling. So relevancy is, is, is it something that truly is relevant or have you picked up a term that it is not, and it's being used in a completely different context. And that's where the NLP comes in as well. And we've spent a lot of time building our taxonomy and getting that checked in the different clinical areas as well. So what we find is that the terminology used by patients can be very different to what's used by doctors. And that's where it's been really important to make sure we're led by the patient voice, but we have a check to make sure that something is a relevant thing to be looking at, not just um, causal, I guess. Great explanations. Thank you very much. And it, and also, one of the things I love about that, when I say that was a great explanation, it's very logical and easy for me to follow. I'm not a data scientist. And so... And nor um, am I, by the way. So, <laughs> I think one of the benefits of running an organization in something that you didn't originally start as a a data scientist, as it were, in this area. I understand that there's lots of people that need to understand what we do who don't come from that technical background um, because we've talked to and have a very broad range of partners and, you know, stakeholders and volunteers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's fabulous work you're doing and the way you're doing it inspires a lot of, you know, kind of trust because you're also doing due diligence. And I imagine that is largely informed by some of your roots. Is Black Swan still involved in the work that you're doing or are you really self, self-operating self at this point? So we, we are an independent organization. We are very grateful for them kindly donating use of their technology to us. So we're run completely independently, but they do donate that technology usage. So that means that we can benefit from their data sources, their data processing power, without the cost and overhead that would go with that um, and the, the investment they've made in their technology, we obviously hugely benefit from. But all of the work we do, we do do independently. 
Yeah. So speaking of benefiting, I don't want to get off this particular recording until we've talked about some of some other stories. You have on your site some wonderful case studies. I just think that I could spend hours just sort of reading about some of the the impact of your work. Are any of those case studies really poignant to you? Does anything stand out to you as, whether it's there or whether it's just in your data bank as the founder, are there any other case studies that you are particularly proud of and excited about? So one of the early ones that I still particularly love is a project we did in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this is a very rare cardiac condition. It often strikes young people. It can be fatal. Most people do not know they have it until they have a heart attack and unfortunately lose their life. And it's tragic for, for anyone to lose a life. It's very tragic when it's a young person for their family. And we did a piece of work to accelerate diagnosis in this area. And one of the things we found, which was a complete new insight for them, is that the people who we should look to educate about this condition were sports teachers because they were often the ones that saw the earliest signs of this condition in young people before necessarily their parents or their doctors because they saw them relative to other children and how they reacted under any type of sporting condition. So that was a new insight, which was then going to lead to greater education in that group to, to spot these symptoms and signs. And I still feel really proud of that because I feel like it was something with not being sourced uh, if we hadn't looked at social data for that. Another one we looked at, which um, I still love, the organisation, the Royal Marston Hospital in London. It's one of our famous, world-famous cancer hospitals. They have an amazing team there and incredibly dedicated to cancer care and improving the outcomes for cancer patients. And off their own back asked us to look at how they could improve their care further and they did that piece of work with us. And one of the things we found was that the understanding of access to, cl to clinical trials and new types of um, treatments uh, that they could get on was a key area that they could improve on. And as a result of that, they've improved that education around that area to improve access. Uh, we've, we've done lots of different projects over time, to be honest. I could probably find many more examples. Those are two of my personal favourites. We've done some brilliant work with the Alzheimer's Society, uh, looking at dementia care and where people reach a tipping point for needing help. And that helps inform their priorities for the, the care and the support they give other dementia sufferers and their families. And even the work that we've done in clinical trial design, I think is great because ultimately there's a lot of pharmaceuticals that are looking to try and improve outcomes for patients but one thing they really need is great insight at the start of that as to what matters for patients and what's the impact of having a condition and therefore what should a new treatment give them so we've done some great work uh, for Bayer in that area which I feel really proud of actually because I feel it's made a significant difference to the outcomes for patients. It's right on mission for you it's right on mission for you I think that's great and you know I think that with my insights hat back on again I I think that is what we are looking for. We are looking for, in all of the work that we do as insights professionals, that one spark, that one thing that we have discovered that is a truth that we can act upon to make a difference. And that is really what the insights field is all about. So, you know, you are you are working to deliver those insights to people that, you know, can give the level of care that we need to have a healthier society. So, I love your work, Miranda. I think it's it's fantastic. You know, I I want to get to kind of some some specifics here about what can people do? How do they get involved? How can they support you further in some of this work that you're doing? 
So if you, uh, if anyone would like to volunteer for us, they should just contact us at hello at whiteswan.org.uk. If you'd love to work with us and partner with us, we would love to hear from you saying contact hello at whiteswan.org.uk. We'd love to have some more organisations to work with now. So we're always looking for new partners that we can do some of those projects with. We've got lots of use cases right across the spectrum from new therapies, discovery, to research priorities, to clinical trial design, improving care, accelerating diagnosis. So we can work across any health area across the whole spectrum. So if you've got a problem or something you'd like to know more about from a patient insight perspective, please give us a shout because we'd love to work with you. That's great. And I know that We are going to be bringing you to the stage at our health event in the spring. So thank you. Um, Spoiler alert, we'll be able to share some some of the great work that you're doing in that forum. So if you haven't yet signed up for IIX Health, which is now going to be a virtual event in February, please do so. We can include that link in the show links as well. But what else is on the horizon for you in 2024, which is really right around the corner? So uh, we've got quite a pipeline of different areas we're working on project-wise that are going to take us through, I think, the next few months. This, what I mentioned earlier about academics, access to this type of data, we're very busy exploring how we could fund find funding to make that happen because we see a very strong need amongst the research community for better access to this data. And then forward from that, we're continuing to build out at the moment how we can use LLMs in our work to improve efficiency without diluting the accuracy of the work we do now. Because one thing we do find with LLMs is they can sometimes make up uh, yeah, stories. <laughs> we've, heard, we've heard a thing or two about that. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so, but we are looking at them as a valuable source of, of time-saving on some of our analysis work. So we're continuing to look at how we can do what we do better for, for our partners. Yeah, and hopefully you have some AI experts in the mix volunteering to help you as well, we I'm do, imagining. Yes. We certainly do. We certainly do. We're very lucky. We've got an excellent mix of, of volunteers and, and advisors. That's so fantastic. Uh, Miranda, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had gotten to during the course of this discussion? I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot, but thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it is my pleasure as well to have hosted you. Thank you for joining us today. And for everybody listening, once again, I thank you for tuning in. It's great to know that you are there and that we are sharing some content with you that hopefully can make a difference in your life as an insights professional or marketer or human being for that matter. I want to shout out to our producer, Natalie Push. Thank you so much, Natalie, for everything that you do to make us a success. To our editor, who... We've been calling Jamie and James, but I also want to start shouting out that he is with Big Bad Audio. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And to our episode sponsor, Dig Insights, thank you for making this episode possible. That's all we have for today, friends. We will see you next time on the Green Book Podcast. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, 
IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research, best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.